When you're 36, you don't expect to become a widow. This is Pamela Addison. Her husband, Martin, died on April 29, 2020, from COVID-19. He was just 44 years old. After his death, you could see the change in her. Their daughter, Elsie, was two at the time. And Pamela had to figure out how to tell her that her father, Martin, was gone. So what I ended up saying was that Papa was sick. He went to the hospital and he couldn't get better. And his heart stopped. And when your heart stops, you go to heaven. And so now Papa's in heaven and we can't go there, but he'll always be in our hearts. New research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Pediatrics, estimates that as many as 43,000 children have lost a parent to COVID-19 in the United States. As many people look toward a new vaccinated future, some families are facing a different reality. How to grieve and move on without their loved ones. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Memorial Day in the United States is a holiday when family and friends typically come together for cookouts. And because the country is so far ahead in its vaccination rollout, it's the first major holiday that many will be able to gather for without a mask. While some may consider this another step toward getting back to normal, for the families of those affected by the nearly 600,000 COVID deaths in the country, it's far from it. At the start of the episode, you heard from Pamela Addison. She's one of three women my colleague Kaylin Ford, business editor for AlJazeera.com, talked to about the loss that their families have faced in the pandemic. We'll be hearing from them in a bit. But first, I talked to Dr. Rachel Kidman from Stony Brook University about the research that she and other scientists from the University of Southern California put together. So you and your team have published a study looking at the number of children in the United States who have lost a parent to COVID-19. Tell me about what you found. What we found ultimately is that for every COVID death, about 0.07 kids lost a parent. So for every 13 deaths, that means one kid is losing a parent. And when we looked at February 2020 to February 2021, we found that totaled about 40,000 kids having lost a parent. Wow. What did you make of that? You know, it's unbelievable and very sad on one hand, and on the other hand, somewhat expected. The mortality has been so high in this country, and we tend to think of this as a disease of the elderly, people 65 and up, there has been substantial mortality in people in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s just due to the scale of the pandemic. And we knew that those people likely had kids at home. So another co-author had come up with this concept of a bereavement multiplier. So trying to figure out how many people in a family are left behind every time one person dies. And for me, I was really interested in how many children were left behind. 
Dr. Kidman says the results of the study are estimates that rely on existing data from COVID-19 deaths and mortality rates in the country. Their analysis shows that about three-quarters of the minors who've lost a parent are adolescents between 10 and 17 years old. The research also shows disparities. We were able to break out Black children and white children, but we find that while Black children make up about 14% of kids in America, they accounted for about 20% of those who lost a parent to COVID this year. I know that it's your job to research the numbers, but what can you extrapolate about why? Well, the simple answer is that it's mirroring the burden of mortality in this country, which is not shared equally due to who is on the front lines as essential workers, due to residential segregation, healthcare access. People of color have disproportionately you know, lost their lives to COVID this year. You know, that's the simple answer. I think the more complicated answer is that we have known about these disparities. And yet, I think for many in the U.S., this is the first time they're really confronting those health disparities and understanding them in a very real way. And that just reverberates what happens to to their parents, happens to those children as well. I want to talk about the implications of your study and what they mean for children. What are the long-term consequences of losing a parent at such a young age in an event like a pandemic? What we know from past work is that kids who experience uh, parental death are more likely to suffer from you know, depression and anxiety. They're more likely to drop out of school or have bad you know, educational outcomes. They exhibit greater suicidality. They take more you know, health risks, drinking, unprotected sex, and they may be more likely to experience abuse as well. And these impacts continue to just reverberate across their lives. The study, as we've mentioned, represents an estimate based on simulated data of what Dr. Kidman and her fellow researchers believe is happening across the country. So while working on a story about the study for aljazeera.com, my colleague Kaylin Ford set out to hear directly from families affected by the pandemic. She wanted to hear from people in different parts of the country and from a variety of backgrounds. Pamela Addison is a teacher on the East Coast. She's a white mother of two. So after I saw the study, I became really interested in trying to connect with some of the families that had this experience. And I discovered a Facebook group called Young Widows and Widowers of COVID-19. It was started by a woman named Pamela Addison who lived in Waldwick, New Jersey. By creating my Facebook group, that has helped me because I have been able to help so many other people in my situation. She's a teacher. She lost her husband, Martin, when he was only 44 years old early on in the pandemic in April 2020. And her husband worked in a healthcare setting. He was a speech pathologist at a hospital. So he was in people's faces all the time. And when the pandemic hit, hospitals weren't prepared. They didn't have the proper protection for the healthcare workers. He went into a certain patient's room and was exposed. Pamela's children are now three years old and 18 months, but at the time that Martin passed, her daughter was only two and her son was only five months old. And she just talked about Martin being just a tremendous dad with their oldest, Elsie. 
So they were just very close. And I actually had to put her into therapy pretty um, soon after my husband died because she would just be sitting and you would just see her staring into space and just had this look of sadness. Her daughter didn't want to eat anything anymore. And she realized after taking her daughter to therapy that this was part of how she, as a, just a two-year-old child, was processing this event. She said that she FaceTimed for the last time with Martin on April 27th, and that was a special day for them. That was the day that he had asked her to marry him. He was heavily sedated, but I talked about that day and how I'd do it again and say yes again. And he squeaked, and I told him I loved him. And even though he was sedated, he tried to open his eyes and squeeze the nurse's hand. And then that was the last time we had any interaction with him because the next day they tried to do the vet get him off the vet again, but he was, couldn't do it. Two days later on April 29th, he died at the hospital. And so she talks about how she waited for two days to tell her daughter she wanted to get some professional advice on how to explain loss to such a young person. She would ask me for a while where he was, but now she will look up in the clouds and say, Papa's up in the sky and I can't reach him, but he's in my heart. And she loves him and misses him. Basically, a year later, she now worries about how she's going to take care of her family financially. At 44 and 37, you're in the prime earning years of your life. You're building a financial foundation together. And so all of a sudden, to be the only one responsible for that is a huge shift. So now when I'm bringing home money, I'm not really putting anything into savings now because it goes to my house and my kids' care. And then there's all the extra expenses that now I've had to tap into savings to pay. She feels fortunate she has savings to tap into to pay the other bills, but those savings won't last forever. And she worries about how she's going to pay for two children to go to college. Education is expensive, especially college. And I want them to have like the same opportunities they would have had COVID not taken their papa. And one of the things that really resonated through all of the women's stories that I was had the privilege to hear and to listen to was that it's hard for her to hear about people saying, we're just going to go back to normal. And I feel like understanding that our lives can't go back to normal because normal is when we had our husbands, our wives. And then when my children had their dad, that was normal. So as much as we want to get back to normalcy, there's just going to be a new normal for all of us. Numbers released by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, show that Native Americans, Black Americans, and Latino Americans have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19 deaths in the country. Ebony James is a Black mother of three in Texas. She told Kaylin what this past year has been like for her. I was able to connect with Ebony James, who's 49 years old. She lives in Fresno, Texas with her three children. She has a 20-year-old son, a 16-year-old daughter, and an 8-year-old son. And she lost her husband, Terrence, just earlier this year on February 19th. Terrence was 49 years old. He also was an educator. He was a social studies teacher. And they believe that he contracted COVID while having lunch with a coworker. 
My husband came home uh, January 22nd from going to the grocery store. He looked sick. So I ended up taking him to the hospital where they admitted him. He had a blood pressure of about 700. She was also hospitalized for COVID. So at one point, both she and Terrence were in the hospital. When I got there, we were literally doors down from one another. They wouldn't allow us to see one another at all. Because I was so sick, I asked her friend of mine call and check on him because I couldn't do it. She called and his nurse came down to meet me and she said, just want to introduce myself. I'm his nurse. I work with your husband all the time. Your husband prays all the time. He talks about your family. And she said, I just wanted to meet the person that he talks about so well because he said how much he loves you guys. She talks about how she really relied on her 20-year-old son to take care of the two younger children, to pay the bills, to make sure they had meals to really step into a parenting role because this was an unprecedented situation where both of their parents were very ill. Ebony recovered. She left the hospital and went back home, but her husband remained in the hospital. On the day that they were supposed to have a Zoom call with Terrence, she had prepared her children to say, you know, let's encourage dad. Let's talk to him and tell him he can do it, that he's going to be able to come home. But instead of calling me back with a Zoom call, they called me back and let me know that he passed. And my reaction to it was a lot of screaming because I couldn't believe this has happened. And my daughter was the first one that heard me, came downstairs, and she pretty much just cradled me like a baby while I screamed and cried. I lost my husband in, in 23 days, so he never came back home. Ebony talks about the challenges of helping herself and her own emotions navigate the death of her husband and her children are at different places in their lives. My 20-year-old, for the longest he who parks his car in the garage, he would just go sit in the car in the garage. And, and I'm not talking about for a little bit, I'm talking about hours. And I just ask him, are you okay? And he'd say, yeah. And I knew he wasn't. My daughter just completely shut down and just didn't talk at all. And my eight-year-old, he now sleeps with me. He doesn't sleep upstairs anymore. My husband used to come up every night, read the Bible to him, and lay up here until he fell asleep. You know, to think how hard it is to watch young people, teenagers and young adults, try to process grief that not even adults can really process. I feel like a hermit, if that makes any sense. She talks about the financial burdens that she faced. Now I'm sitting around looking at a mortgage and I'm looking at bills. And after all of the bills are paid for, there's not going to be enough to sustain us for the month. Not once all the bills get paid. Because she was also sick and hospitalized, she has her medical bills that resulted from her battle with COVID-19. To be honest with you, I'm just paying what I need to, whatever puts food on the table, whatever keeps the lights on. She talks about trying to apply for some of the social safety net services in the United States and being denied for them. She says she was denied for Medicaid. She said she was denied food stamps. She said that because her children's health insurance was through her husband's job, when she went to go look for health insurance through the kind of health insurance marketplace here in the United States, it was so expensive she couldn't afford it. So right now, my kids, they don't even have insurance because I can't figure out how to pay for it. I, I can't. So I just said, okay, I'll just have to keep y'all safe until I can figure out how to do it because I don't know how to do it right now. She's already spoken about how she needs her daughter to get a scholarship to be able to go to college. She wants to be uh, a veterinarian, and I know that I can't afford it. 
She also talks about something that I feel like we don't hear as much about, which is the extremely high funeral costs that people face. And often that money has to come up right away, right now, and has to be taken from savings or taken out in a loan or put on a credit card with a very high interest rate. School districts automatically give you a $10,000 like life insurance or something like that. So that's what I use to bury him. Based upon what I did, it was 16000 I didn't do a church service. I did a burial outside the cemetery because that was the only way that I could figure out how to afford it all. And we know, for example, the Federal Emergency Management Agency here in the United States, FEMA, is offering funeral reimbursement. But the process to access that aid is long. You have to call on the phone. There can be a long wait time. So you've got to set aside that time. And in many cases, it's just not enough assistance. That assistance tops out at $9,000. And we know that funerals in many parts of the country cost much, much more than that. The expense of death and living without the income of a partner who's passed away is something Kaylin heard about a lot, including from Laura Guerra, a Latina mother in Riverside, California, who lost her husband on Christmas Eve of last year. Laura Guerra is a 33-year-old mental health specialist, and she lost her husband, Rodrigo, when he was just 33 years old. He served in Iraq in 2007, and he was injured in a roadside bomb attack. He suffered damage to his leg. It was an injury that impacted some of his mobility. And during this time that he's in the hospital, they talked about how it was difficult to turn him onto his belly, which sometimes is done with COVID patients to help them breathe. And she wondered how much of a role that that injury from Iraq in 2007 played in that kind of lack of mobility. Right now, the VA is pretty much telling me that his VA benefits were not entitled to them because he didn't die of something service-related. Her daughter turned one on December 22nd. Rigo was still in the hospital at that point, like two days later. She talks about being there in the moment that he passed away. Christmas Eve, they called me and they said, come back to the hospital. And for about the two hours that I was there, I just went back to his window and I just watched there like the entire time. I remember like hitting the window and saying, no, I couldn't believe this was happening. Like he was really healthy a month ago. He's only 33 years old. And I just, I just stood there and watched until his heart just stopped. Now she's back at work and all of a sudden she has to figure out how to work full time and take care of a one-year-old child just automatically comes in a lot of the unknown. What am I going to do with our house? I'm going to have to sell our house. I'm going to have to sell our cars. One of the things that she mentioned would be really helpful to her family is to be able to have non-traditional work schedules or part-time work schedules for parents who lost their spouse to COVID-19. I'm thinking about the future with my daughter and I can't necessarily say I want to commit to a 40-hour week, but can't also lose the benefits of health insurance either. That would allow them to have the flexibility and the schedule that allows them to take care of small children at the same time. And that's one of the things that I heard from all of the mothers that I spoke to, Pamela, Laura, and Ebony, all mentioned that it's really challenging to know what to do about childcare when you're on your own. Investing in childcare is one of the things the Biden administration pushed for as part of its COVID-19 relief bill passed by the U.S. Congress in March. 
The bill provides stimulus checks to people under a certain income and also offers a child tax credit. However, much of the help won't be available until July of this year. Kaylin says the mothers she spoke to are looking for more support from the government. You know, many of these families have been paying child care with just one parent's salary since their loved one's death. And so they're waiting on funds that might not be distributed until December. When these are the bill for a preschool or a daycare is coming right now, it's not going to wait for federal assistance. Similarly, the people that I spoke to want some sort of help and assistance that focuses on the long-term health and well-being of their family. You know, you have suddenly women who are paying the mortgage on their own because of the death of their spouse. You want some sort of assistance or relief that helps them pay that mortgage, not just during the pandemic, not just a moratorium or an evictions, for example, but going forward, how do you make sure those families can stay in their homes? A lot of the families that I spoke to talk a lot about worrying about paying for their children's education. And one of the things that they said that would be really helpful is a scholarship fund for children who lost a parent to COVID-19. When it comes to recommendations, Rachel Kidman, the researcher from the study on parental leave, had a few as well. You know, one of the things that we need to do is really strengthen the family's ability to care for these children. We need to pay attention to their social and emotional needs. Many of these families are grieving in isolation. This has been a strange year. It's an isolating time. And that's one reason I think schools are going to be really important. And I'm glad that more schools are opening safely because these teachers, these guidance counselors, these school psychologists, they're our line of support for kids. Congress has already approved some compensation for funeral expenses, for example, around COVID. And I think setting aside funds to help those who are grieving is really the next logical step. And we don't have a national policy that guarantees bereavement leave. And that surviving parent or that new caregiver needs to be able to take some time off, not only to process their own grief, but to be there for the child that just lost their mom or their dad. At the time that you wrote this study and worked on it, the vaccine landscape was not what it is now. Do you have hope now? When we wrote this paper originally, only 200,000 Americans have lost their life. Now almost 600,000 have. And it's hard to keep revising the estimate of how many kids have lost a parent up and up. But it does seem to be stabilizing some now. And that is hopeful. I think we still need to do a lot more and stay vigilant. While it's coming down, not everybody has had access to the vaccine, because until everybody is vaccinated, we're not entirely safe. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez, with Nagin Auliai, Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tove. Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Al-Milek is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. Special thanks to Dr. Emily Smith-Greenaway from the University of Southern California. If you want to learn more about this topic, you can look for Kaylin Ford's piece on aljazeera.com. And we'll link to it on our social media accounts. Follow us at AJ the Take on Twitter or Instagram. We'll be back 